0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Before we begin our study this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have Your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is in Thy light that we see light. Father, we pray that as we study Your Word this evening that You would enlighten the eyes of our soul that we may come to understand and comprehend truth in a way that is not just academic but impacts the way we think about life, the way we see reality, the way we interact with the problems and the challenges that face us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of announcements. First of all, thanks for the prayer. It, uh, I got better more rapidly than I thought I would, And but Tuesday afternoon I was just croaking and I knew I wouldn't make it through class. And I thought, well, I'd cancel class, but we don't have an updated list. So many new people are coming. There's so many uh, folks who probably aren't on an updated phone list that that... <clears throat> uh, I'll just go ahead and tough it out. And then I thought, well, maybe on just an off chance, I'll call David Dunn and see if he's available. And just worked out in the plan of God to be available. So there is a new phone list posted out in the foyer so that people can sign up, put your name, address, phone number on there so that we can call you in the event of inclement weather or pastoral illness or uh, hurricanes or cyclones or whatever may uh, interfere with class. This Saturday morning on February 4th there, it will be a ladies' prayer lunch. It's potluck, so bring a dish and make sure there's something in it. That begins at 10 a.m. If any of you wish to be, let me see, oh, that's a repetition of the announcement I already made. Okay, open your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to back up just a little bit to the last paragraph in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4.14 that talks about the fact that therefore because we have a great high priest, we're just going to focus on that a little bit because this sets the theme for the next section in Hebrews. In fact, it sets the theme for the next two major sections in in Hebrews, the superiority of the... Priesthood of Jesus Christ over against the temporary Aaronic priesthood which is based on the Mosaic Covenant. Now last time I set this structure up on the screen so that you have a general understanding of the flow of thought in, in Hebrews. As I stated in the opening introduction some uh, 40 hours ago, Hebrews was written but I believe it was originally based on a message uh, that was given, a teaching that was given. And it gives us some illustration of an oral, uh, what an oral message or teaching was like. It's divided uh, based on these warning sections that we have th- that are scattered through the epistle. There's five warning sections. Each one comes at the end of a teaching section. So you have a didactic exposition followed by a practical exhortation that may be a warning in and of itself, or it may include a warning. So the first section extends from uh, 1-1 down to 2-4. 1-1 through 4 is the opening uh, uh, prologue. Then you have a second section that we just finished, 2-5 down to 4:13, And then the third section begins with 4:14, picking up the theme of Jesus Christ's current high priestly ministry, which was introduced back in chapter 2, verse 17. This is the major issue that underlies everything that is said in the book of Hebrews in relationship to the believer. Back in the opening introduction last spring, I stated that the theme of the epistle is the implication of the Savior's session on the current sanctification of the saints and their future service in the kingdom. The writer is building out the implications from the current session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. It is, although He is eternally priest, prophet, and king, it is His priestly ministry that gets activated uh, full force at the ascension when He uh ascends to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it is only in the book of Hebrews that this high priestly ministry of Christ is really developed in the New Testament. Paul doesn't say anything about it in the Pauline epistles. Its implications are, are fleshed out in the book of Hebrews. And the implications are that we have a Savior who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is our high priest... And as such, he, because he has already gone through the process of sanctification, spiritual growth, the same process that we go through, that he is the originator, he is the pioneer, he is the forerunner of our spiritual life, that he is able, therefore, to come to our aid. And there are uh, powerful implications of that for the believer. And there are serious warnings for us if we fail to persevere in obedience and advance to spiritual maturity and that impacts our future service as priests and kings in the millennial kingdom so in the previous section from chapter 2 verse 5 down through the end of that didactic section 3.6 the writer sets the stage for our understanding of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and so there are uh, Four points, or actually more than that, seven points that I have on the importance of the high priesthood of Christ. First of all, he lays out the necessity of the Son of God to become fully human, that it is necessary for the Son of God to become fully human. He, this was a problem for the Israelites to understand, for Jews to understand. That's why, as we'll see later, 1 Corinthians 2.11 Talks about the fact that Jesus Christ's crucifixion is a stumbling block to the Jews. They just did, had a difficult time understanding that God was going to become a man. So his argument begins with the necessity of the Son of God, uh, the necessity of the Son of God becoming fully human. Then he develops that in verse 10, that Jesus is the captain, that's the King James or the New King James translation meaning pioneer, pathfinder, originator. He is the forerunner. He is the one who sets the precedent for our entire spiritual life, the entire salvation process. When you see the word salvation there, as I pointed out before, it's not justification salvation. It's looking at the whole process, the whole package, and that Jesus Christ is a pioneer of our salvation and that he had to be brought to spiritual maturity in his humanity through adversity. He had to go through the same kinds of tests, the same kinds of adversity, the same difficulty that we go through. He had to be tested in relationship to his uh, trust and reliance upon the power of God to sustain him through the various tests, adversity, trials that he went through. Hebrews 2.10 states, "...it was fitting for him, for whom are all things..." and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain, that is, Jesus Christ, our pioneer, forerunner, pathfinder, the captain of their salvation, perfect, that is, mature through adversity. So Jesus Christ had to become, the second person of the Trinity had to become, the Son of God had to become true humanity. Second, as true humanity, He has to set the the pattern for us in terms of spiritual growth and the spiritual life. Third point that's made in chapter 2 is that Jesus had to be true humanity, that through his death on the cross, he would defeat the devil. Through his death on the cross, he would defeat the devil. And this goes back to the original... Statement of the gospel, what's called the Proto Evangelium, back in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, when God is addressing the serpent in that section that is normally called the curse, where God is spelling out the judicial consequences on mankind and on the universe for the uh, failure of Adam, for his fall, for the the sin, and uh, in that. Section, he he addresses the serpent and says that the woman's seed will, uh, you, you will crush the woman's seed on the heel, but he will crush you on the head. And this is the first indication of the fact that there would be an attack against the seed of the woman, but this attack would not be fatal, but the seed of the woman would in turn crush the head of the serpent. So Satan is defeated at the cross. So we face a defeated enemy, but he still controls the territory. And that's why he's referred to as the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. He is still going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Jesus had to be true humanity that through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, he would defeat the devil. Hebrews 2.14, And as much then as the children, that is, as... Uh, You and I, uh, human beings, have partaken of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. He had to be true humanity. That, purpose clause, through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. But not only did he have to be true humanity so that he could defeat the devil on the cross, but as a result of that he would release those who are in bondage. And this word translated release is the Greek word apalasso, which means to set free from slavery or to release from a state of being controlled. So it is through his death that not only is Satan defeated, but we are released, freed from something. And this is the previous slide here, that we are released those who through fear of death are subject to bondage. So there is a release from fear. Now, most of us would think that uh, if we reflect back on that time when we were unbelievers, that fear of death was not necessarily something that was foremost in our thinking. And so we look at something like this, and what the Word of God tells us, despite your experience, is that at the core of our thinking, at the core of our emotional state, is that we are driven by fear and we'll develop that in just a minute but we are delivered from and released through from that fear of death and that that is part of the package that goes with being a fallen human being we'll pick that thread up in just a minute that takes us to the fourth point that is made back in chapter 2 That Jesus, therefore, had to be true or genuine humanity for the purpose of becoming a merciful and faithful high priest. So there's this procedure. He has to be born as a true human being. He has to go through a qualification process where he learns various things through the things that he suffered. He learns as a human being to trust God, and he grows and matures spiritually, setting the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. He is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and he relies upon the power of God the Holy Spirit to solve the problems that he faces in his humanity. Now, in his deity, he still performs various miracles, such as the uh, changing of the water into wine to demonstrate that he is who he claims to be, that is God. He forgives sin. But when he performs miracles from his deity, they are not miracles that are designed to solve his personal problems or uh, tests. For example, when Satan takes him into the wilderness and after his 40 days of, uh, of, of uh, fasting where he hasn't eaten and Satan tempts him to turn the stones into bread, he handles it by the word of God and says don't you know what the scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God so he doesn't function out of his deity to solve the problems that he is facing in his humanity he only operates from his deity when he is demonstrating his his deity that he is who he uh, claims to be so he is born a man he has to be true humanity, not just uh, he's not just a a deity that comes upon a human being. that was one of the Gnostic views was that you have this man Jesus who's born man, and then there's this divine spirit that sort of manifests itself through him, starting with the uh, baptism with John the Baptist and then just before the cross, this divine spirit leaves, and the man. Uh, Jesus is crucified and dies. That's, that was one of the Gnostic views. Another Gnostic view was that this is just an an appearance of God. It's just an apparition. He, what, he didn't truly become flesh because if you were truly flesh, that would uh, corrupt deity because in Gnosticism, you have this dualism between matter and spirit. Spirit is good. Matter is inherently evil. And so, therefore, God could never become true humanity and that was at the core of much uh, gnostic teaching that became popular in later on at the uh, in the 2nd and 3rd century so the emphasis here is on the true humanity of jesus he became like us the emphasis is of course on his he's already deity but he becomes a man he goes through this process goes to the cross where we are freed from uh, sin, he pays the penalty for sin, freed from the uh, fear of death. Uh, Satan is defeated, and then Jesus goes to the next stage where he becomes our merciful and faithful High Priest, and that becomes a foundation for what the writer of Hebrews is going to develop for the spiritual life in the next uh, four or five chapters. In the point number five, in the role of High Priest. He makes the propitiatory sacrifice to God for the sins of mankind. This was one of the primary functions of the high priest under the Mosaic Code was that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood from a sacrifice of a lamb that was without spot or blemish, and he would bring that blood into the Holy of Holies and place it on the mercy seat. Here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant where you have a box of acacia wood that is overlaid with gold and then there is a lid that is placed upon the Ark of the Covenant and on that lid are two cherubs and the cherubs represent the holiness and the righteousness of God and these cherubs are looking down to the center of this lid and that lid that center place is called the mercy seat and the High priest would place the blood from a lamb that had been sacrificed on the mercy seat. And it was a picture of the fact that God's justice and his righteousness are satisfied by the substitutionary death uh, of the of sacrifice. And this is fulfilled by Jesus Christ who himself is the propitiatory uh, sacrifice so that he satisfies the justice and righteousness of God. And this could only take place because Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. He was sinless. And because he was sinless, he could die as our substitute on the cross. So the mercy seat is then developed as the place where we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this transition in the thought of the writer from the end of that second section where Jesus Christ makes propitiation for the sins of the people and the idea of propitiation is from the Greek word which translated the Hebrew word for the mercy seat. And then we come to the beginning of our section where Jesus Christ is... Uh, the uh, high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, therefore, we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this flow of thought that we have that because Jesus Christ is our high priest, because he's gone through the same kinds of testing that we've gone through, because he's learned obedience through the things that he has suffered. And in Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to aid those who are also tested. And because he is able to aid us, we can find mercy and grace and aid from our Savior who is standing as our representative next to the Father to handle the uh, the attacks and the assaults and the accusations of Satan. So we see this connection between his high priesthood, the mercy seat, his work work of propitiation, the mercy seat, and then his current ministry of aiding and strengthening us in times of testing. So that the reality of Christ's high priesthood is one that is vital to our spiritual life and our focus. This isn't just some sort of abstract doctrine, that Jesus Christ is now prophet, priest, and king. Amen. There is a significance to this that often people miss. It's not just that he intercedes for us. I mean, this is something that is designed to give moment by moment strength, aid, comfort, and power to the believer... As we go through difficult times, it is supposed to be a reality that dominates our thinking. That right now, no matter what you're going through, whatever difficulties there may be, whatever pressures you face in life, Jesus Christ has already been there and done that. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for you, to pray for you, and is always ready to give aid and strength to you no matter what you're going through. So this is an intensely uh, practical doctrine. This is why in Hebrews chapter three, verse one, the writer says, "Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus." And that's a command there from Kata Noeo, to carefully contemplate study reflect upon, meditate upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we are commanded to think about Him, to focus on Him, to study about Him. These are the crucial doctrines that undergird our whole belief system so that Jesus is referred to as the Apostle and High Priest of our belief system. That is our confession. The word there for confession is the same word we find in 1 John 1:9 homologeo it not only means confession in the in the sense of admission of guilt but it also means confession in the sense of profession of belief or a statement of doctrine that is it has the idea of admission or acceptance of the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ this idea of the confession is picked up again in the beginning of our next section in 4:14 be, um therefore, because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, so in three one we're commanded to uh, contemplate, meditate, study upon who Jesus Christ is, because he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, and then in four fourteen we are to hold fast to this Confession, this statement related to the person and work of who Jesus Christ is. Now what undergirds all of this is a fascinating illustration for the believer. We are pictured as soldiers, as warriors in spiritual warfare from Ephesians uh, 6, 10 and following, who are engaged in a conflict in enemy territory. As part of that, we're representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings in the whole doctrine of ambassadorship. But we are moving day in and day out, moment by moment, through enemy territory. Even though Satan is defeated at the cross, he is still alive and active. He is still uh, prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And moment by moment, we are... Uh, under the, We're operating in territory that's under the control of an enemy that is more powerful than we are, who is invisible. We can't see him. We don't understand what, his, uh, what he is actually doing, how he is influencing uh, people and history and the events of our day. And the only thing that we can do is to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Since Satan has already been defeated, he is now engaged in what we would call a guerrilla campaign, a guerrilla type of warfare, a warfare of terrorism. And he seeks to terrorize believers so that rather than focusing on Jesus Christ and his power and his sustaining grace, we focus on the problems of life, we focus on the details of life, we get distracted so that we're more concerned with what's going on around us than we are with God's provision and power for us in the midst of of the adversities of life. So Satan is, in, is engaged in a campaign of terrorism against believers. Now, the core of this is that he is seeking to, the, the concept of terrorism is to induce fear and anxiety into uh, the individual so that we are... Uh, fearful of what might happen and this brings us to sort of a sidebar this evening on the doctrine of fear so let's take a look at what the bible teaches about fear first of all to understand fear we have to recognize that fear is the initial reaction that we see in fallen man after adam sins Fear is the first reaction of fallen man to the presence of God, following Adam's sin. This is seen in Genesis chapter three, verse ten. After they sinned, remember they were realized that they were naked, and they made uh, clothes of fig leaves. And then they, when God came looking for them in the garden, uh, they ran and hid. And God said, "So, why did you run and hide?" And Adam said, "I heard your voice in the garden." And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, there's just a lot going on there. I mean, the very presence of God exposes to Adam his guilt, his failure, and his vulnerability. He's just totally exposed out there because prior to the fall, he's enveloped in God's protection. The enemy can't really get to him. But once he... Disobeys God, there is an automatic shift that takes place in reality, and he is instantly uh, cowering he 's instantly afraid he 's instantly timid, he instantly realizes that that he 's exposed he 's vulnerable he 's naked, and they try to solve this problem on their own, but it is uh, an, it is a, a a pseudo solution that can 't work, and it is characterized by fear so that the orientation of the fallen human soul is fear. Now we cover it up, we try to hide hide it, we try to disguise it, we try to uh, anesthetize it, but at the very core of the rebellious creature's soul is fear because now he's exposed, he's out there as it were, uh, a soldier in, who's been completely left by all of his support, all of his uh, logistical aid, and he's just out there without armor without firepower and he is exposed to all the assaults of the enemy, so the orientation of the human soul is towards fear, it's also oriented towards fear because now there is going to be judgment, he knows that he is has violated the righteous standard of God and God is going to uh, judge, condemn, and judge man for his disobedience and his and his lack of righteousness, so at the very core of the fallen soul is this orientation toward fear, and people try to cover that up all kinds of ways, and they go through life and they seek to anesthetize it with success, they seek to anesthetize it with drugs or alcohol. Or, or the pursuit of pleasure, or whatever it may be. Somehow the details of life, there's some elements of, of, uh, of creation that they focus on in order to try to numb this sense of fear and anxiety and worry, this, this uh, dread. What is it that uh, every now and then some, um, some psychiatrist comes up with a term that, that comes close to describing it, the Germans called it angst. And that's just at the core of the, of the human, human uh, soul is this, this dread. It's, it's not focused on anything uh, necessarily, but there's, aware, there's an awareness that man is this limited, finite creature that's just, being, that's just out there. And so he, man tries to cover it up with, with uh, every kind of pseudo-solution possible. And that's what Adam did when he creates the uh, clothing from fig leaves. So we can observe from this, secondly, that the reality of sin and disobedience is instantly known by the unbeliever, just as Romans one eighteen and following, which we studied many times, shows us that the unbeliever knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that God exists, because just the nonverbal witness of creation is enough of evidence of the existence of God that Scripture says that. The knowledge of God is evident within them because God has made it evident to them. Romans 1, 18 through 21. In the same way that fallen man knows that God exists, fallen man also knows that he is exposed and he recognizes that and, and, it's, and it produces fear in him. So that every human being is aware of the fact that he is a sinner, that he stands in condemnation. Disobedience to God, and he has this internal sense of fear fear of exposure, fear of failure, fear of death, fear of punishment. There's just this sense of fear, and that somehow, in order to get past this, we've got to control the circumstances around us so that we can have some sense of stability. This leads to the third point that fear is the core mental attitude sin. That is the counterpart to arrogance. Fear is the mental attitude sin that goes along with man's arrogance and his desire to be completely independent of the Creator. So it is the emotional sin that goes along with arrogance and the arrogant orientation of the sin. This is the irony that the creature seeks to establish and assert his autonomy. God, I want to do it myself. I'm going to make my own decisions. I can can run everything myself. But as soon as he gets away from God, all of a sudden the realities of the universe are there and he's scared to death. But he's not willing to submit himself to the uh, authority of God and orient himself to the authority of God. So fourth point, fear then for the believer is a sign of carnality and a lack of trust in God. When you become afraid, when your soul is controlled by fear, worry, anxiety, dread, all of these counterparts to fear, what, that is a sign that we are living in carnality. We're operating as if God is not in control and we're the ones who determine uh, stability in our own lives. So that means that we have to go back to the scriptures and stabilize our thinking by going to the various promises that God has given us that are related to fear. So I want to just run through some promises for you that you should perhaps memorize one or two of these that you can grab hold of at various times when you are worried about things in life, that you are fearful or afraid. For some people, that's not really as much a problem as it is for other folks. Some people are just prone to worry. That's the trend of their sin nature. Other folks are not quite geared that way, but we all have times when we are fearful. Exodus fourteen thirteen a gives the foundational principle. This is when uh, Moses tells the people, do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. This is when their backs are against the Red Sea. And the uh, chariots of Pharaoh are pressing from behind. It looks like they're about to be annihilated. And he says, stand still and see the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. That's the foundational principle. The battle is the Lord, David says, as he's going against Goliath. Stand still, relax. Don't trust in your own efforts, your own power, your own ability. Trust in the deliverance of God. Joshua articulates the same principle in Joshua 10:25 25, in, in the context of the conquest of the land. Joshua told the Jews, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The uh, book of Joshua is a picture, uh, the historical events of Joshua are a picture of the Spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict that every believer is engaged in. We face numerous enemies. We face enemies related to the sin nature. We face enemies related to Satan and the demons. We face enemies related to the world system and cosmic thinking. And this applies to all those enemies. The Lord will give us victory, so we should not be fearful nor dismayed, but we should be strong because our confidence is not in our own power It's not in our own mental ability or IQ. It is in the power of God. Do not be afraid, but of strong courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Psalm 27 gives a promise that is uh, probably one that's a favorite for many people. David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When our confidence in the Lord is in the Lord, He is our strength. He's our power. He's the one who strengthens us, who sustains us, who aids us so that we can just relax and not be fearful. We look at the uh, things that happen in the world today and we see uh, the threat of, of Iran becoming a nuclear power and their threats to wipe out Israel. We look at Uh, A lot of the economic news that we hear, we realize the instability of of an economic system that is built on on faith and just just paper money. And we look at the indebtedness that that the the nation's in. And we look at all the other things that threaten life on a day-to-day basis. But we can relax because we know that God's in control. God's working out his plan through history. And if God is in control, then who, who, who should we fear? Why should we fear? Why should we worry? God is the one who is going to comfort us, sustain us, and strengthen us. Psalm 27.3, two verses later, David says, Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident that God is his strength. Psalm 34.4, I sought the Lord, and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking the Lord through uh, Bible study, reading the Scripture for yourself, read through the Psalms. When there are times that you are overcome with worry, with fear, anxiety, uh, it's a great comfort to go to the Psalms because David many times goes through uh, times, when, especially during that period when uh, Saul was chasing him and seeking to kill him. David is uh, surrounded by enemies, he's threatened, he expresses those fears to the Lord, and then he focuses on the character of God, which brings him around to a position where he's relaxed, he's confident, and his emotions are stabilized. So he claims in Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble." No matter what the situation may be, God is always there to aid us and sustain us. We have Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who has gone through these same kinds of tests, trials, adversities, and he is there to sustain us. Psalm 46, 2. Therefore we will not fear. God is our present help in times of trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Now notice the flow here. He states a principle in verse 1. This is what happens when you're going through the process of the faith rest drill. You focus your mind on a, on a promise, a fragment of scripture, a principle, and you wrap your thinking around that. And here the principles given in verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a present help in trouble. What doctrine does that refer to? God is omnipresent, so he's always present to us. Therefore, we don't go through any trial, any test, any difficulty where God is not there with us. He's a present help in trouble. Therefore, let's reach a doctrinal conclusion. Therefore, I won't be afraid. So we think about who God is. We think about his promises to us. That brings us to a doctrinal conclusion that, therefore, I won't be afraid. Of course, 30 seconds later, you're starting to worry about it again. You're starting to get fearful, so you have to go through the process. Sometimes you just go through that cycle five or six times every uh, five or six minutes until finally you begin to stabilize, focus, and it becomes a reality. Now, that takes time. That's the process of spiritual growth and how we... Move forward. It takes time. It doesn't happen in a day. Isaiah 41.10, of course, is a verse of promise that's familiar to all of us. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You can tell I memorized this in the King James, and that will never leave me. Philippians 4, 5, and 6 is another, or 4, 6, and 7, another important verse to memorize. Be anxious for nothing. Direct command. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. But instead, in contrast, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving related to what? Whatever it is you're fearful, anxious of. Whatever it is that you're, uh, in dread of. Be thankful for those circumstances, that situation. Uh, Go to the Lord in prayer and let your request be made known unto God. The result is that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, protect your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Protect from what? From fear, anxiety, dread. So that you focus on God, not on the problem. Which brings us to 1 Peter 5, 7, that we are to cast. The idea is there that we just throw our anxieties, our worries, our cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. So there's a rationale there. Because you're a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He's provided everything for you because He cares for you. In turn, we are to throw all of our cares upon Him and to let Him handle it. And then five seconds later, we got to throw them back again. Psalm 56.3, Psalm 56 is a tremendous psalm to read through when you're going through times of fear or difficulty. It's a good, when you just feel overwhelmed. Uh, One of the verses there talks about how he collects our tears in a bottle. And this builds on the uh, ancient Near East practice that at a funeral, they had a a special bottle, a a little vial, that they would uh, collect their tears in, their tears of mourning, and then they would preserve those. And what that imagery there is, is that God is aware of every tear that we shed, and he pays attention to it. It's it's a tremendous indication of how God is always there, no matter what we go through. So David says, whenever I am afraid, I will trust In you, in God, I will praise his word. See, the it is the word of God that gives us that comfort. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? In Romans 8, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? So that leads us to point six. Having gone through the promises, we recognize that there is a fear-related complex of sins. Fear, worry, anxiety, dread, panic. These are not part of God's plan for the believer. God did not save you so that you can go through life governed and controlled by fear, worry, and anxiety whenever there are difficulties, adversity uh, that you face. So point number seven, fear then puts our focus on human ability or really inability, rather than on God's grace. Fear puts the focus on human ability, which is really an inability to solve the problem. Therefore, you become fearful, anxious about what's going to happen, what might happen. Usually the worst-case scenario never happens. Now, sometimes it does. That's not an absolute. But uh, that's what I find. Usually whatever I think is going to happen, that doesn't happen. best case doesn't happen either, somewhere in the middle. But God always is in control. So rather than wasting all of that time in fear, we need to focus on the provision of God. So fear puts the focus on human ability or inability rather than God's grace and His omnipotence. That's point seven. Point eight. fear doubts God and attempts to trust in man. But man is weak. Man is incapable of being the source of stability. And then point number nine, fear or worry can add nothing to the solution of the problem. Fear or worry can add nothing to the solution of the problem. And one section of Scripture that I would encourage you to read when you have problems with worry or fear is in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 down through the end of the chapter. And I just put this up on the screen so we can read through this. It's a great passage to be reminded of. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. This is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "...for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on." In other words, the basic logistics of life, food, shelter, clothing... Don't worry about those things. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? See, that's the basic point. We worry, we fear. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything productive and doesn't add a thing, doesn't doesn't solve anything. All it does is uh, waste a lot of time and turn our insides into knots. Verse 28, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, in other words, that's just temporary, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? God is going to sustain the believer. Now, maybe it's not the way you think you ought to be sustained, but God is going to take care of you and provide for you that which you need to accomplish his plan for your life. Verse 31, again, do not worry. Then saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Verse 32, in contrast, for the Gentiles, see, as the Gentiles, here he's talking about the way the pagans operated who don't have divine viewpoint. For the pagans eagerly seek all these things. That's their priority, the food they eat, what they drink, their clothing, all of these things, all the material aspects of life, that's their focus, and Jesus says, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He's fully aware of that. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the priority. When He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, see, we get that righteousness at salvation. It's not something that we're doing subsequent to salvation. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Once we're saved and we possess the righteousness of Christ, then God is going to supply the logistical grace that we need that comes with the possession of Christ's righteousness because we are adopted into the royal family of God, and as part of that whole package, God is going to sustain us. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Live one day at a time. Focus on the provision of God. Now, what happens when we get into fear is we get into a a deteriorating cycle where fear controls and leads to other sins. And it it has a debilitating effect on us if we allow it to continue. So these are some principles that are familiar to most of you and we'll just run through them again for a little reminder. The more things you Surrender to fear, the more things you fear. As you go through life and you begin to worry about some things, you you just open up your sin nature to that whole area of fear, worry, and anxiety. And the more things you fear, the more things you're going to fear. Secondly, the more you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear. It just builds and builds. It has a snowball effect. Third. The more you surrender to fear, to the extent that fear control, to that extent, fear controls more and more of your life. So the more you surrender to fear, to that extent, fear controls you. You make decisions and you become more and more fearful. And before long, you don't want to leave your house. You start becoming an agrophobic, and you just don't want to go out. You're afraid to go out at night. Something might happen, uh, and more and more. Uh, decisions are controlled by that fear and anxiety rather than trusting God knowing that he has complete control of your life. Fourth, the more you increase the power of fear in your life, the more you sink into carnality and failure in the Christian life. Begin to worry about everything. You're, you're fearful of everything. And this begins to erode the stability in your own soul. Remember, if fear is the controlling factor of the of, of fallen man, And the more that we are governed by fear, the more it erodes, fragments our soul. Leading to the fifth point, the greater the power of fear in your life, the more there is self-induced misery. And the more you experience that self-induced misery, you can't find happiness. Why? You're controlled by fear. You can't have stability. Why? Something might happen. You're anxious. You're worried. You're uh, overwrought. Six, the more miserable you become, the more self absorbed you become. And this just lights that whole chain of uh, arrogant skills where you're self absorbed, leading to uh, self indulgence. And so you just give in to the fear and you worry and uh, let that dominate. And then as you go from uh, self indulgence, then that leads to self justification. And you rationalize sin. You rationalize. Uh, disobedience you focus more on the problem than you do on the solution this leads to the fact that you become divorced from reality so that there is self-deception and and there's a distorted view of reality which affects decision making and then this leads to self-deification we become the source of truth rather than God being the source of truth so uh, you become more miserable, and you become more self-absorbed, focusing on the problems. Then seventh, increased arrogance plus increased fear leads to mental and emotional instability. It leads to what, what psychiatrists would call neuroses and psychoses. It cause, causes breaks with reality. It destroys concentration. It destroys your ability to do your job. It destroys your ability to relate to other people because you're absorbed with yourself, your fears and your your worries and concerns. We have to recognize that we're involved in a battle of terrorism that is waged by Satan and the demons against Christ and those who are His. He is the one who once held us in slavery, but He was defeated completely At the cross, we operate against this invisible enemy. This is what Ephesians 6 is all about, and the solution is to stand firm in the power of Jesus Christ. And since we still operate in enemy territory, we're surrounded by the world system, the only way we can have stability is to rely exclusively on the power of Jesus Christ. So he is our high priest. This is the thrust of this, this section. We are to rely upon him because he has gone through everything. He has established what that trail is that we are to follow. He's our pathfinder. And because he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, then we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find strength to help in time of need. This is the principle that we find in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, where God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, In conclusion, Most gladly I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest in me. When we recognize our inability is to recognize His ability. And Peter concludes, Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It is a matter of authority orientation. That's the uh, structure of 1 Peter chapter 5. When we orient ourselves to the authority of God, then the fear, the anxiety, the worry goes away. So we humble ourselves and we do this by casting our care upon him because he cares for you. So Jesus Christ is our High Priest. Jesus Christ is called in Hebrews 2:17 uh, a uh, faithful and merciful High Priest, and this is expanded in uh, Hebrews 4:14 4, to that He is a great High Priest, and as such, He is the one who aids us, strengthens us, and comforts us in every situation and circumstance. In life, So the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ is not something that's just abstract, but it has to do with giving us uh, strength, encouragement on a day-to-day basis no matter what we face. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of uh, what Christ has gone through, what Jesus uh, did in his life, setting a precedent for our spiritual life and that we now have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, received his promotion to your right hand, and there he stands as our advocate and always willing to, always interceding for us and always ready to come to our aid and to strengthen us whenever we face uh, trials, difficulties, that we may uh, rely upon him, that his grace would be sufficient for us no matter what our problems might be. We pray that we'd be challenged by the things we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen.